Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Taking a look at Netflix year to date, the stock's up only 11% lagging the market. We had a downgrade today. Laura Martin Needham Company downgrading the stock uh, to equivalent of a sell. Stock's off about 1.4% today, $298. Again, only up about 11% year to date. So we are fortunate to have the one and only Laura Martin in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. She's a senior analyst for Needham & Company. Laura, thanks so much for being here. Um, why the downgrade? So what we're saying is that um, Netflix must have a second tier that is in the five to seven dollar price point, not uh, not just its nine to sixteen dollar premium tier. Now that Disney and Apple have five and seven dollar tiers, and that's where Peacock is rumored to come as well when it launches in May of 2020. And we think the best way to do that is not to lower their core price, but to add add advertisements. And we uh, calculate that if they added six minute ad load, they could generate six per sub per month. So that way, new people could be attracted to the service. A lot of people steal the signal now. They borrow their parents' passwords or they borrow their friends' passwords. They could start paying directly. But it wouldn't hurt the average ARPU of, of Netflix, which could stay at $13 a share. Um, because, And we calculate that if they don't have a price point commensurate with other streaming options, they will lose 4 million US subscribers, which are three times as profitable as international subscribers. So you said sell, uh, and and you point to some fundamental problems with its capital structure. I'm wondering what you think the trigger would be for the significant decline in prices. To I think your target is $260 a share, or $260. Yep. So what, what's a catalyst? So our our concern is that if Netflix begins losing U.S. U.S. subscribers, given that it lost 126,000 subs in Q2 and it was down 10% in 24 hours is that the stock would be revalued, it would lose its growth stock credentials and become traded on EV to EBITDA. So the closest company, and we cover all the fangs, the closest company to them is a 15 times EV to EBITDA, which is a $260 price. There you go. All right, so talk to us about its really, really early days of this increased competitive environment for streaming. Disney just launched, you mentioned Peacock from Comcast coming next year. Any early sense of how this might shake out in the streaming wars? Yeah, I think we do have a sense because Disney has already, it, Disney has announced it added 10 million subscribers in the first 24 hours. We have App um, Nexus saying it's added 16 million subs, um, adding a million subs a day. So our point of view is that some of those subs will churn out of Netflix for some period. And all you need is for 30% of you, Netflix subs to churn out for an extra three months and voila, 4 million subs times 12 months a year at $13 each leave your revenue. So that's, and that's really harsh in a company that's trading at 7.2 times revenue, which is where Netflix trades. All right, I'd love to take a bigger picture look at this field as we do get the uh, advent of all of these new streaming services. How many do you think each household can legitimately pay for? What's the threshold? I mean, are there just gonna be three big survivors that emerge from this? Uh, yes. So the average household today takes 3.2. And when you ask them, they don't put Amazon Prime in there because they think they're paying for a Prime subscription, not a Prime TV subscription. So it's 3.2, excluding Amazon Prime TV. Okay. okay. So 3.2. So then I think if you are one of the 40% of American consumers that owns an iPhone, 
which is the wealthiest, you're going to add a service or two. No problem. The problem is the other 60%. And that 60% of homes either A, doesn't pay for TV at all because they're not, they can't afford any TV, or they're going to churn faster out of Netflix to substitute Disney this year or Disney, like The Mandalorian is a huge show right now. And Disney, for three months, they're going to watch The Mandalorian, then go back to Netflix. They're going to be more cautious with their money and not just add and add and add. And that adds to Netflix churn, which is horrible at a seven multiple of revenue for Netflix. Laura, let's switch gears a little bit. Viacom and CBS uh, just closed their deal to uh, this week, now trading on their symbol VIAC, I think. You've covered both companies for a long time. You were there when they were together, when they were split, now they're back together. What's your view of this recombined Viacom? So I think people are underestimating the margin expansion potential here. I think there's a lot of costs they can take out. Obviously, they understate that for employee benefits, but I think you'll see them take out 30% more costs than they've admitted to the street, which means that they're going to be able to grow the EBITDA and EPS line. And I do think it's a stock that trades on EPS. Um, I'll be very interested. I think they're going to have a stronger streaming service together than they did apart. And I think they're going to basically dominate the TV. If you like Fox, which is 100% dependent on the linear TV ecosystem, I mean, it trades at a huge or premium to these two stocks, but these two these two companies together have a much bigger portion of Comcast and Charter and Altice's bundle. Just real quick, 10 seconds. Sure. Do you think that Netflix has a chance of going out of business if it does not adapt to uh, the modern environment? I think more likely is they start losing U.S. subs, which are three times as profitable, and then they have trouble growing international subs fast enough that are profitable because their international subs they're adding today are $3 subs in India. So they can grow the revenue, but if they get marked down to not be a growth stock, um, bankruptcy is a long way, but I do think that the U.S. profits are really buoying the business, helping the business today. A very... Uh Thoughtful answer. Analytical, as <laughs> Analytical always. Analytical and, and thoughtful and insightful. Laura Martin, thank you so much for being with us. Laura Martin is Senior Analyst at Needham & Company, joining us here in our Interactive Broker Studios. Well, underneath the market calm is a growing concern that the repo market, the sort of plumbing of the financial system, has not been fixed by the Fed's temporary uh, repo facility, and that going into year-end, we will see a lot more tumult. Joining us here in our interactive broker studio is David Kotak. He's chairman and chief investment officer at Cumberland Advisors, and I was struck by this note uh, that Zoltan Pozar of Credit Suisse put out, where he was saying he thinks that people are underpricing the risk of a severe uh, liquidity shortage that ends up driving the Fed to have to buy coupon treasuries in another QE4 type move. Well, I, I, I think he's right. Um, Zeltan does marvelous work, uh, number one. He may not be known to all listeners, but he is a highly skilled, technical, he has huge capacity to understand the flows worldwide in this 
particular front end high grade market. Number one. Number two, this is a very complex issue. So maybe we can simplify the issue and think of it in the following way. We're, we're used to banking systems, bank deposits, bank reserves, banks making loans. That's how we think about the banks. There's a whole parallel system of liquidity management and it's in repo or reverse repo and it's an alternate form of cash management or financing or borrowing and that's outside the bank channel but it's linked to the bank channel so it's intricate now we got a set of rules that govern the banks and they are creating a constraint for the banks to take all this excess liquidity and use it in the repo market. And we saw that in September because the repo market had a problem. It had a hiccup. So an interest rate on a riskless overnight security went to 10% from two and a quarter. Think about that. It's not supposed to happen. Why didn't it happen? Why didn't the banks intervene? And we now have some understanding of why, but we haven't fixed the why. All right. So without getting into the nitty gritty, I highly recommend that you seek out this Credit Suisse Zoltan Pozar note. It's fantastic. There's a great story on the Bloomberg about it as well. I'm wondering what the consequence is as an investor in risk assets heading into year end. Do you think that people are not prepared for a sell-off in risk assets that could ensue uh, from this type of disruption? Uh, I don't know how prepared people are, Lisa. What I do know is in the technical money management analytical community there's a lot of conversation about it in the general press in the general investment community it's ignored because we're being inundated with impeachment and trade war and all the headlines so you have you have two discussions going on at once the narrow one is the unknown it has risk of a shock. What do you do if you have a fail? You have a collateral that doesn't deliver. You overstep some limit, some threshold, and then you have a default. You have a shock. And therein lies a risk if the system, is, if the system fails. And the question then is, how much will the central banks intervene in advance, prospectively, to avoid that? They'll intervene at once after the fact but what do they do to avoid the shock and how well by the way to are we going to learn from this fed meeting are they prepared for it what are they going to say so what do we know about i guess our, our listeners are probably saying i'm just trying to frame the risk here is this a december 2019 kind of risk to the financial markets or is this kind of what we saw in september of this year which was it's kind of a short-term thing, and, and the Fed kind of calmed markets, and I'm not going to worry about it too much. I think market agents who are pricing securities are looking at this and say, at, at worst, it'll be a repeat of September, Paul. One or two days, everybody will get excited, and then we'll go on to something else. And probably that's accurate. The, the Fed was caught flat-footed in September. They've been warned. Now, if we get a spike in repo again, way above what market rate should be, and that's only a few basis points movement, what would it say? It says the Fed failed. They had warning, they had a shock, and they didn't fix the problem. That would be more serious, in my opinion. All right, let's shift gears a little bit to the 2020 outlooks. Let's... Uh 
pass over the December potential turmoil or any other disruption. I'm wondering, are you actually, congratulations, got it totally right, said that you went all in uh, on markets. The market rallied quite a bit. Where are you now in terms of the cautious versus risk on spectrum heading into 2020? Uh, we raised some cash in the quantitative strategies. We're back in cash in the regular managed ETF accounts. We have a cash reserve. And in the fixed income accounts, we have a barbell. And we are happy with some of the short end because we think we're going to be able to deploy it at higher interest rates. Y- you had a little note out or tweet on how tight the triple <laughs> B spread geek. was. 100%. And, 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 I own and, it. And, okay. And it went everywhere. So you were viral, viral with a triple B. <laughs> so you think about... You viral th- in quotes. In quotes. Unless you've been sick. Yeah. But we don't want, we don't want anybody sick. So no. you think about what your note said. What it said is we've got such a flood of liquidity worldwide. These spreads are not reflecting credit risk. Someday, sometime before the year 2035, there's going to be credit risk repriced in the market. And we want to be in a place to take advantage of it. So do you have any kind of recession outlook in your 2020, 2021 kind of outlook here? We're starting to get some signs maybe that some stabilization in some of the European economies, but I'm just not sure if it's a green shoot or not. Yeah, well, we are in no recession, slow growth camp. Paul, we've been there for a while, and there's no reason to change that. We, we think that there are enough shoots, whether you want to call them green or something else, to see rising labor income taking away from return on capital in the U.S. You saw a little in the, you did a deep dive in the productivity numbers. They reveal it. You look at the employment report. The, the, there are a number of signs that this labor market is finally tightening enough to begin to get upward costs of labor and labor costs. Long time coming. But if it's coming, that means capital, profits, get the pressures. All right. So, David, real quick here, 30 seconds, and then we'll let you go. What's going to be the best performing asset class in 2020? I like the U.S. healthcare sector. Mm. It's been terrific. Policy risk aside. Policy risk aside, insulated from the trade war, and the sleeper might be in the energy patch, which is so beaten down and killed that it's got no room to go down anymore. It's on the floor. (laughs) Two value plays. David Kotak, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, David's chairman and chief investment officer of Cumberland Advisors. Coming all the way up from Sarasota, Florida, going against the migration that happens this time of year. Uh, But he joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, and we appreciate that. Not a lot of action in markets today. However, if you do look at an index, the main index of Mexican stocks, you could see that they are up 1.3%. This comes on the heels of an announcement of a USMCA agreement that Mexico, Canada, and the US are all planning to sign today. The US House of Representatives is expected to take it up next week and pass it. Joining us now to understand the significance of this deal is Christopher Wilson, Deputy Director of the Mexico Institute for the Wilson Center based in Washington, D.C., Uh, Christopher, thank you for being with us. Let's just get started in terms of who are the big winners from this deal and who are the big losers? 
Yes, thanks very much for having me. I, I mean, I'd say the business community in general is a winner. I mean, the American people and, and the people across North America are winners in a certain sense. And that big sense there is that having a deal now restores certainty to an area in which we've had so much uncertainty over the last couple of years. Trade policy has been you know, a big focus point for markets for the last couple of years, and it will remain to be given everything that's going on with China. But this little piece of it across North America is basically wrapped up now. Uh, it means that all of the companies who have built up a continental system of production across North America with parts and materials going back and forth across borders. So auto parts that, you know, move across the border to then be put into a, you know, fully assembled into a vehicle. Hundreds of billions of dollars of investments have been made to create that system and the competitiveness of North, of North America that comes along with that system are now safe again. Uh, so that's the most important thing. Now, some, there are some more specific winners and losers. So the, one of the bigger changes was, again, on autos in terms of an increase in rules for regional content. So you have to have a greater portion of an automobile made within North America and specifically made within the United States or Canada in order to comply with USMCA rules. So that will create some, a few new jobs in the U.S. auto sector and potentially the Canadian auto sector as well, but it will make cars more expensive as a result. It will be a drag on the overall economy at the gain of sort of a, a much narrower sector. You know, we can look at the agricultural sector as well. The United States will get a little bit more access to, to Canada's dairy market, for example. So there's a, a win there. There's also a modernization that's happening with the agreement. So it's a lot of little changes to update NAFTA for the 21st century. These are provisions on data storage, e-commerce, things like that. I mean, products now are increasingly being delivered as much via email as they are via truck, and we needed rules to govern that across North America, things that just didn't exist in the original NAFTA 25 years ago. You know, it's interesting, uh, Chris, since President Trump, you know, essentially scrapped NAFTA, calling it the worst deal of all time, we've had three years of uncertainty, three years of negotiations, this deal doesn't look that much different than NAFTA. It's 95% NAFTA. I mean, this is, you know, and that's why I say the most important thing that's happening here is just removing some of that uncertainty. You know, there are important differences between NAFTA and USMCA, but we have to start from a baseline that this is basically just the restoration of the certainty surrounding NAFTA itself. We still have free trade across North America. We still have protections for investors that are investing across the borders in North America. And that, you know, is way bigger than any of the specific changes that are made. Now, it's, it's absolutely important that Mexico had to undertake a labor reform, you know, for example, in order to comply with USMCA rules. That's going to be good for workers in Mexico. It may increase costs of production slightly in Mexico. But, you know, the, the bigger thing here is absolutely what's staying the same much more than what's changing. All right. I get the point that everybody wins in the business community, uh, community kumbaya, hold hands, sing songs. Uh, but we are is hearing a bit of pushback from specific slices of different industries, in particular, uh, the U.S. and Canadian aluminum group saying that Mexico is looking after its own interests uh, with some of the requirements within USMCA. Is there anything legitimate here? Are there any industries where there is going to be a, a lot of back and forth and, and dissonance in terms of the winners and losers? Yeah, well, there was a, a, a you know, sort of 
last hour proposal to try to strengthen some of the rules around aluminum production that would have favored U.S. aluminum producers. And Mexico was successful in sort of stopping that from moving forward. And so that's, you know, what that specifically is about. There was another sort of ultimate hour uh, proposal regarding steel, and that one does stay in the agreement with the transition period. Uh, but, you know, there was basically concerns that you'd have partially finished steel and aluminum coming into Mexico from other countries. They would do just a tiny bit of work on it and then call that Mexican aluminum and steel. On steel, uh, Mexico you know, was less successful, the U.S. was more successful, and vice versa on aluminum. So yeah, absolutely, there, you know, there are winners and losers in this, uh, but it, it comes down to those you know, sort of very specific sectors that you're bringing up there. Chris, while we have you, I want to get maybe your broader uh, take on just how things are going in Mexico. You know, all we see or a lot of what we see uh, in the States is just, you know, the stories about the extreme violence there and it, the government doesn't seem to be able to get a handle on it. How, it. how does that impact the economy of Mexico? Just that uncertainty and the violence and the, you know, all the uh, government issues. What's the real bottom line that you're seeing? Yeah, so I mean, Mexico is just completing the first year with its new president, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, president from the left after many years of sort of center or center right rule in Mexico. And so there's a lot of changes underway in the country and a lot of, you know, additional uncertainty related to that. That's one of the reasons why USMCA and having this wrapped up was so important for Mexico is, you know, in the context of, of so much uncertainty, here's a little piece that's coming back. Uh, but yeah, Mexico, you know, 2019 is going down on record as one of the most violent years historically in Mexico. And it's going down as a year with, you know, almost zero growth in terms of GDP in Mexico. So this is a very challenging year for Mexico. Uh, I think we should expect the government to be able to mobilize a little bit more in terms of investment in the coming year. Transitions are always tough in Mexico in terms of keeping government investment moving. Uh, so that's a positive thing to look forward to. Uh, but this, you know, the, the bigger question is just the, the governing style of the current president. And I think the, a lot of the private sector in Mexico is very concerned uh, about the future of Mexico and the Mexican economy. Uh, but, you know, there, there's still a compelling case to be made that production in Mexico is, is, you know, one of the most important ways for companies across North America to cut their costs and be more competitive. So that's that, you know, continental system of production that I was talking about. That's, you know, that value proposition is still out there and it's still bringing investment into Mexico. So it's, it's a mixed story. Absolutely. There are big challenges domestically in Mexico, uh, but there's also a strong logic to continuing to invest there. And we'll see, I think, the companies who are already in Mexico, who know how to operate in that complex business environment, staying there, reinvesting their profits, growing their business yep. in Mexico, while we see others maybe stay on the sidelines and wait and see. Christopher Wilson, thank you so much for your commentary there. Christopher Wilson, Deputy Director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute. Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by opinion columnist Andy Brown. He's editorial director for the Bloomberg New Economy. Just held a big uh, conference uh, in China recently. He joins us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Andy, it's a trade day here today. We have some movement on the USMCA. We've got some positive commentary coming out about the December 15th China tariffs. But let's focus on something different as it relates to trade. Maybe the trade in the past, which is the World Trade Organization. Tell us just summarize what the WTO is 
And what's happening to it right now? So the WTO sets the rules for global trade and provides the referees and umpires. And what's happening today is that two of the three remaining judges on the appellate board, which is the WTO's Supreme Court, are going to retire. And the U.S. has frozen their replacements. And so without an appellate board, the work, the substance, the real arbitration work of the WTO stops. Although, in many ways, the WTO had been defanged a long time ago, right? I mean, basically, it had been losing importance over the past few years, correct? Right. So losing relevance in the sense that whole areas of global trade, for instance, e-commerce, are not covered under WTO rules because WTO came into came into being before all that. That's a problem. Uh, it's also ossified in the sense that it can only proceed, change the rules through consensus, unanimous decisions among all the members, and it's almost impossible to get that to, to, uh, to, to, to work. The big problem uh, really is the arrival of China. And China is quite simply playing by a different set of rules. And the WTO was not set up to, to accommodate an economy of the size of China, which is not a liberal, free market, capitalist-driven economy. It is, in many respects, they call it, we call it a state capitalist system. Exactly what that is is not clear, but it's not free market. So give us a little bit of history about when China came into the WTO. What happened? So the Chinese economy starts opening up in, in 1978 with Deng Xiaoping's reforms, and it's doing pretty well. Uh, the reforms unleash animal spirits in China. The economy keeps growing. Uh, and then you get to 2001, where China joins the World Trade Organization, and it just gets its growth is supercharged, right? So you now remove a lot of uncertainty from China's trade and investment, and you get this wave of investment from the U.S. So, you know, factories dismantle in, in uh, places like, you know, the U.S. Northeast and reassemble in places like Dongguan in southern China, in Guangdong and Guangdong becomes the factory floor of the world. That's the WTO. China has got more out of global trade than almost any other country. And that, of course, is the beginning of, or the, the, beginning of the new era of globalization, where you have global supply chains, which now start to, which now overwhelmingly go through China. All right, Andy, when you came in to, to the studio here, I asked you, how big of a deal is this really? Because the WTO has been uh, dead for a while, or not dead, but dying and sort of losing relevancy. And you said, this is a big deal, and it's because it comes at a time when you're having difficulty coming to just simple trade agreements, but now you don't have the overseer to mediate any arguments. Can you explain what the potential consequences could be? Okay, so, you know, this is, this is what we, the, the WTO and the appellate court is the heart of what we call the rules-based global trading order. And we do not now have a global set of rules that are enforceable. So we say, of course, we've just said that, you know, in, in many respects, this was coming for a long time. Uh, but in the absence of global rules, what you have essentially is law of the jungle. Might equals rights. So you're going to have the U.S., China, the big players will essentially dictate the terms of trade increasingly through bilateral trade agreements, which is going to disadvantage smaller eco economies. Is there talk within the global trade community of any type of replacement body that could function as, you know, kind of an arbiter? 
Right. So the, the EU uh, would like to keep this arbitration mechanism going. And so they're, they're putting in place a sort of uh, a temporary patch or a workaround at court in, in Europe. Uh, and we just heard uh, that the Chinese may be interested in signing up to that. Andy Brown, thank you so much for being with us. It's really interesting to see how much change there is happening on the international trade front. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.